My name is Brian, not Brian Frost, in case you were wondering. Uh, I'm the pastor of Family Care here, and it is uh, my joy and privilege to uh, be able to open God's Word today with you as we continue looking at John and really pick up where we left off last week uh, in the beginning of John chapter 14. Um, I want to start, I, I love, the, um, love the mountains and uh, have been um, just blessed to spend some time out west on several occasions. And the picture you see is actually a picture in Oregon. Uh, but interesting thing about the mountains, if you spend any time in the mountains, and of course we're close to mountains here, um, and, uh, and so you'll, you'll recognize this if you love to hike, um, you don't get the best views unless you climb the mountain, Right? You don't get the best views from the valley. You get good views, don't get me wrong. Uh, It's all beautiful, but you don't get the best views unless you get above, oftentimes above treeline, and then you see the grandeur of the world. And uh, oftentimes when I've I've been out west and and I've been uh, in the mountains, uh, to be on the top of the mountain uh, is an overwhelming thing. I mean, you, you feel very small. You realize how small you really are, but you, you don't get those good views unless you get above treeline. Oftentimes, you know, places that I've been, when you're down in the valleys, uh, you can't see very far around you, right? And uh, so there's, there's trees and underbrush and, uh, and, and you miss the beauty of what's going on because you can't see beyond a few feet ahead. And even in that, there are some people that when they hike, uh, it is so physically taxing on them, they never get their, head, their face off the, the trail, right? But I don't, I've, I've never been there, of course, but, but, uh, but, but you get caught up in what's in front of you and you miss what's around you. And, uh, and I think that that's a little bit of what's going on in this text uh, today. Uh, so to set up where we're going to be in John 14, I, I want to catch us up to speed with where we are uh, in the gospel of John. We're headed to the cross. Um, In a few short hours from this text, literally, the disciples are going to witness the greatest act of love that has ever been or ever will be displayed, period. God in the flesh, Jesus the Son, will willingly lay down his life for a world who has no merit, by which to deserve his love or the lengths to which he will go to show it and make it possible for us to even understand his love or truly experience it. And the disciples, they understand that he's leaving. They have an understanding that Jesus is leaving and they even have some understanding that his leaving means that that it's gonna leave through his death. Jesus has been clear about this with them and they're troubled And they're afraid. And I think Jesus is saying here in the upper room in John 14, look up, look up, I'm with you. I'm leaving, but you will not be left alone. Look, lift your eyes, focus, look at me. Remember who I am and what I've taught you and what I have shown you. And remember where I've come from and where I'm going. And remember who sent me and who I'm returning to. Look up. Lift your eyes. And he does it as he speaks to their hearts that are troubled and anxious with some incredible promises. 
This is where the gospel of John is this morning. Remember John, for his part in writing this gospel, he's building a case for the identity of Jesus, right? His whole gospel is built around putting Jesus on display, as you were, almost as if Jesus is on trial. And he's presenting evidence and he's presenting witnesses that attest to the person of Christ. And he tells us at the very end of his gospel, this is why I'm doing this, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing that we might have life in his name. John is saying, look up, and Jesus is saying, look up. And last week, uh, Brian and Ryan both reminded us that Jesus was offering the antidote to their anxious hearts. And that, that remedy in the text was believe. But the real answer to their anxiety was Jesus. It wasn't believe some random facts. It was believe in God and believe in me. But Jesus didn't stop there. And that's where we pick up this morning in John chapter 14 with uh, verse 15. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we, um, we're so glad that you're here. And if you came and you don't have a Bible, I want you to look at the chair in front of you underneath it to, the, to your, maybe right in front of your right or left. Um, there's a Bible there and it would be our joy and our honor for you to just keep that as your own. And if you want to turn with us, then you can turn to the book of John, which is in toward the end of, uh, of the scriptures, uh, chapter 14 and verse 15. Jesus answers their anxiety by helping them to focus on what he's promised. And so today, I want us to look at three promises that I think Jesus is making at the end of John 14. But before we do, I want to tell you guys, I, I believe that only Christ can awaken our affections for him. Okay? We've just come out of the front end of verse 14. In fact, our memory verse for uh, this period of time, if you're walking with us and memorizing scripture, is John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Our affections for God will only be ignited by Jesus himself. We know the love of God, right? We, we know the love of God through Jesus. And none of the promises that he makes for us are true if God didn't love us first. That's the starting point. And that's going to be really important for us to remember as we look at this text, in particular with verse, verses 15 and 16. So let's read John 14, uh, verses 15 through 31. And this is what Jesus says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you are in me and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 
Now Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you heard is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you that while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and he'll bring into remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives it do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the father for the father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let's go from here. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to see the truths of the scripture and the promises that you make to us to cure our troubled hearts? May we look up and see Jesus. And may that vision of our Savior bring us peace. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I believe that Jesus makes three promises, okay? And I'm going to tell them to you up front and then we're going to unpack these three promises. Uh, First of all, I believe Jesus promises the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, In verse 15 and 16, that's exactly what he says. There's a promise of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to tell you what the other two are and then we're going to come back to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I believe Jesus promises is a peace that only he can offer. And then the third thing that Jesus promises is that Satan has no power over him. And all three of these promises in this text, I believe, are speaking to the anxiety that they are feeling because Jesus has said that he's leaving. And they're, and they're hurting because their, their strength, their peace comes from his presence. And so we're going to look at those three promises that Jesus makes to them and see what God is saying even to us in these texts. Now, Jesus promises the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a new concept, right? I mean, this is the Spirit of God um, was present in Genesis at the creation. God the Father creating the world through his word, even Jesus, right? The word of God is Jesus. And the Spirit is hovering over the waters. So, The Spirit is present in the beginning, but the Spirit's also present in the prophets. And even some of the things that Jesus alludes to in John 14 are spoken of in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, uh, the prophet writes, through the inspiration of God's Spirit, I, that is God, he's speaking on behalf of God, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, right? The spirit is there, and it's even what Jesus alludes to here in John 14. So why does Jesus promise this Holy Spirit? 
Why does Jesus promise the disciples, hey, I'm sending a helper to you? Well, he's still speaking to their fears. Right? He starts John 14 and he says, look, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Believe in God. The disciples are kind of like one of my daughters who I'm not going to say their name. You can ask them later and they'll probably be honest with you about which one it is. Uh, but, you know, we have one daughter that she needs to see us to feel secure. And she's fine as long as we're in her presence. But there are times, especially when things are unfamiliar, when things are a little tense, if she cannot see us, all bets are off. Right? I don't know if you've ever had a kid like, like that. But, and, but, but it is not, it's not good. It's a really scary thing. And once she gets to that place, it's hard to calm her down. And I think this is where the disciples are. They're like a kid who needs to see their parent in order for everything to be okay. And their parent has said, I'm going on a trip, right? And you can't come with me. And their mind is reeling. And they want to see Jesus because their peace and their comfort comes from his presence. But he's telling them that he's leaving. And so he's speaking to that anxiety that they're sensing about the fact that they're not going to be with the one that they've spent their last three years with. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he starts by promising to send the Holy Spirit, right? And I believe the Holy Spirit does a couple of things that we're not, there's no way for us to plumb the depths of the Trinity or in particular the Spirit today. And we're actually going to look at him more as we move further into John. But in order for us to understand why I think this promise is so rich here, I want to tell you four things that I think that the Spirit does quickly so that we can understand what Jesus is speaking to, though I think even in the moment, the disciples didn't feel the weight of it, okay? The Holy Spirit confirms or affirms Christ's identity. I, I believe that, that the Spirit is, is giving witness to the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus just said right in the passage that we're memorizing right now, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he tells us in this part of John 14, I'm going to send the Spirit of what? The truth. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is going to send the spirit of truth. I think Jesus is telling them, I'm going to be with you. I am going to be with you, not in the way that you think. You're not going to see me the way you see me now. But you're not going to be alone. I'm going to leave the spirit of truth, God himself, with you. And so he's going to affirm Christ's identity for us. I think that he also ignites our love for Christ. John is clear in his epistle, we love because God loved us first, right? This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us first and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins, a payment in exchange for our sins. Romans 5, Paul says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through what? Through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. 
God's love is poured into our hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We know God's love through the work of the Holy Spirit. We recognize it as his spirit dwells in us. And so I think that he ignites our love for God. I also think that he reminds us of Jesus' words. It's what he tells us that he'll do. In this passage, uh, he says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into remembrance all that I've said to you. Now, here's the cool thing about the Gospel of John. John, we believe that the Gospel of John was written 50 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So get this. John recalling this is the work of the Spirit. John remembering words that Jesus said to him at the moment of his anxiety and his trouble and his spirit before Jesus is taken to the cross. John's remembrance of the words of Jesus to give to us are the work of the Spirit. The promise is fulfilled in the writing of the Scriptures. In fact, the Scriptures themselves are the work of the Spirit. Paul tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It was written by hands of men, but the Spirit is the one who moved and impressed upon them what to write. So even the Word of God that we have to read about God and and to see the accounts of things like the life of Christ, that's all the work of the Spirit. And he helps us to remember what Jesus has said. And John is proof of it. What a blessing that we can see the fulfillment even of that promise in the writing of the very words that tells us a promise. And lastly, I think that the Holy Spirit empowers us to obedience to him. Now, I I want you guys to understand, I, I realize that there's tension in this text and I want to admit it at the front end because, but I want you to see the bigger thing that's going on here. If we just extracted John 15 and John 14 verses 15 and 16, um, and this is what it reads. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now, if we just extracted that verse, those two verses alone, we might get the impression that this is the order in which God works. You must love me. And in loving me, then you must obey me. And if you love me and if you obey me, then my response to you will be that I send the spirit. If we just extract those two verses, that might be where we land. But that is so far from the truth. And so we have to step back And we can step back and just look at what John says in chapter 14, but we need to look at the whole of Scripture. But if we just looked at John 14, I believe this is the pattern that Jesus is actually demonstrating. Belief, love, obey. So believe, love, obey. Now, I think that it's really important that we see this right? Believe, right? He starts there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, remember the work of the Spirit is to help confirm in our hearts the identity of Christ. Believe. Believe what? Believe who Jesus is. Believe in who Jesus says that he is and who God is confirming. Believe And when we understand the depth of who Jesus is, right? If when we begin to wrap our hands around what God is doing and sending Jesus, then guess what the Spirit does? It gives us a glimpse of the love of the Father. 
What we, when we talk about love, I'm not talking about our love toward God, though I think that that's a piece of it. I'm talking about the Spirit, when we understand who Jesus is, the Spirit removes the blind from our eyes and we understand what, who Jesus is and what he's done. We see the overwhelming love of God that he had for Jesus and in turn had for us by what he did for us. And so we believe and then we love, we experience God's love and that wells up in us an affection for God because we recognize what we were before Jesus died on the cross and what he did for us. And we recognize the depth of his love for us. And out of that, then we are called to obey Well, obey what, you might ask? Well, let's just take the gospel of John. When Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do all that I've commanded. What did Jesus command primarily in the gospel of John? Listen to this. Follow me. Chapter one. Chapter six and seven. Come to me. Chapter seven. Believe in me. Chapter 8, abide in my word. And chapter 14, believe me, believe the things that I'm telling you and believe in God. The overwhelming commands of Jesus in the gospel of John are an invitation to relationship. Guys, it's not a list of moral platitudes God is not calling us to do more. He's calling us to come to him, to look up on him. As the psalmist writes, to taste and see that the Lord is good. His commands are to, in fact, see him and embrace him for who he is and what he's done for us and understand the depth of love that he has for us. And this is why I believe that when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, it's flowing out of what he's already said to them. Believe in me, know that I love you and know that the Father loves you because of what you're seeing done. And you're about to see the greatest picture of that that you can ever imagine, but right now you're really scared. So trust me, I'm gonna send one who's gonna help you remember what I'm telling you. Believe me. Know that I love you. Love me and obey. So as a point of application, God's promise of the presence of the Spirit, I would just encourage us, let's trust the Spirit to ignite our love for Christ and in turn, help us to obey Him. Let's trust that the Spirit will do the work that Jesus has said that He sent Him to do. But that's not the only promise that Jesus makes here in uh, chapter, the end of chapter 14. Jesus also promises a peace that only he can provide. You know, the world offers fragments of peace and all kinds of things. We mostly do it through contracts and legal jargon, uh, lifetime guarantees, insurance policies. I mean, products have lifetime guarantees, right? And uh, I've got a picture here uh, of a a limited three-year warranty, right? And uh, all of that text 
for a coffee maker, okay? And not only that, but if you look here, if you can read it, there's even something special for you if you live in California. So um, you can take that. I don't know why that, that matters that California is unique, but all of that jargon over a coffee maker, promises made about a coffee maker and promises that we can hold on to, right? Why we have product guarantees. We, we have life insurance to provide families peace of mind. We have home insurance that offers property insurance, but in all of those, there's always stipulations, aren't there? Our peace is, is the stipulation for our peace is that things have to happen in a certain way. And even work contracts offer the promise of income, but often have with them expectations attached to that. So when Jesus says, my peace, I leave you, uh, my peace, I'll give to you, not as the world gives it. I think what he's getting at is that the world offers a peace that's only a shell of peace. Even when countries war, peace is established through what? Generally, the exertion of power. Peace is brought because someone is stronger than the other. And in any moment that that tension flip-flops, there's no longer peace. And the reality is that peace is only at an upper level anyway. Under the surface, there's turmoil and chaos. There's uncertainty. And there's no guarantee of the promises. And Jesus says, I don't offer that kind of peace. The peace that Jesus offers is tied to something much more profound than temporal property and financial stability. Remember, the gospel teaches us that our greatest problem is a relational problem. We have forsaken our true love. We were created to experience the presence and the pleasure of God's love. And Jesus alone has the authority to offer the the restoration of that. Why can he... Why is he the only one that can offer that peace? Well, he's going to the Father through the cross. This is where we're headed. Only Jesus is qualified to offer what he can give, and that is his very life in our place to restore what is the greatest tension in our lives, which is our relationship with the God who made us. And we are incapable of bringing peace to that relationship. But Jesus, on the other hand, is both qualified and has authority to. And so when he says, I'm offering you a peace that the world can't offer, he's not talking about fighting with your neighbor or the Roman Empire. He's talking about the peace that supersedes all of that. And that's the peace with the creator, God, God, the father who made them. Romans chapter, the end of chapter four and the first part of chapter five, um, Paul writes, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our trend for our for our justification. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through what? Our Lord Jesus Christ. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners at odds with God, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, God reconciled us to him by the death of his son. Much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we rejoice that in God, through Jesus Christ, we now have received reconciliation. Our peace comes through Jesus. And how does he accomplish it? Through giving his life in our place as a substitution for us so that our sins might be forgiven and our relationship might be restored. And the world cannot offer that. 
It has no authority to. Only Jesus can. And he's saying to his disciples, I'm leaving you with a peace that you desperately need. Don't be afraid. The Spirit brings us peace because it reminds us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And when we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for it, it fans into flame our affection for him. And we know him and we know his love through the promises that he's made and he empowers us to obey him out of love. And this is peace to know God and Jesus whom he sent. So as a point of application, I would, I would encourage you, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the depth of what he's done for you bring peace to your hearts. And as believers then, can we let that, let that fuel us as ambassadors for that peace? Right? That we've been given that message that we get to share that with the world. Well, Jesus doesn't just promise his presence through the Holy Spirit or promise a peace that only he can provide. He also promises that Satan has no power over him. He says in verse 30, I will no longer talk much to you for the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. This is really good news for us. That Jesus is greater, his power is greater than the power of Satan. But you know, without Jesus, it can't be said of us. Jesus acknowledges Satan is real, and I think that that's good for us to hear because we have an adversary. Our adversary hates God, and he is powerful, and we need to remember this. In a day when people would say that, generally speaking, you know, we're all good at heart, and that hell does not exist, Jesus says we have an enemy and he's real. If Peter says it in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We also need to remember not only that we have an enemy who is real, but that we are not stronger than our enemy on our own. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We don't believe because Satan has his hands over our eyes. And we're powerless to remove his hands from us. But Jesus isn't. Satan has no claims on him. We were powerless in our sin. Right? Romans 5, 5, while we were still weak, helpless, powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ephesians 2, 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive in Christ. We were powerless. Jesus is not. Sin has left its mark on humanity. Since the garden, we have been constantly misplacing our affection. We were made to experience and reciprocate the love for God. 
But in the garden, Adam and Eve doubted the love of God, right? Their whole problem was that they believed that God was withholding something from them. They doubted God's goodness and his love to them. And in doing so, they took their eyes off of the one who made them, who had given them perfect love, and they looked down and looked at themselves. So, As a result, Satan's power over us is sin and death, right? Because of the fall, we are bound to our sin. We're not looking up at God anymore. We're looking down at ourselves. Um, It's not a physical death alone that, that Satan brings. In fact, the bigger issue is that it's a spiritual death, a severing of a relationship with the God who made us. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God in their shame, but they didn't just hide from God, they hid from each other. Right? And so sin was complete. When Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and soul and your strength, and the second is likened unto the first to love your neighbor as yourself, in the garden, sin was complete. It broke them both. And now our love is focused inward. So why is a promise of Satan's lack of power for, over Jesus such good news to us? If Satan's power is sin and death, and that's the thing that he holds against us, and that keeps us chained, and we're powerless because of it, right? We can't do enough to overcome that. That's the gospel. We can't do enough to overcome our relational problem with God, that we look at ourselves and not at him, that we trust ourselves, that we are inward focused and that we don't receive or acknowledge that he is God and he's sovereign and he's good and all of the things that come with that. When we are bound by our sin, we recognize that Satan's power over us is the thing that binds us. But Satan has no power on a sinless man. And this is why it's really important that the scriptures make it abundantly clear that Jesus never sinned. Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John. It's also why Jesus' death was sufficient to secure our forgiveness, to restore our relationship, right? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And it even confirms what John the Baptist declares at the very beginning of the gospel of John when he sees Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why Jesus' sacrifice of himself satisfies the wrath of God against ungodliness and ends the need for the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats and brings about the end of the need for sacrifice because his is sufficient. And his, Jesus's, his resurrection then confirms his sinlessness in case we wondered if sin could not hold him and death could not keep him in the grave it has no power over him and it's precisely in Jesus's work that our salvation is both promised and made secure so when Jesus says Satan has no power over me it's good news make no mistake about it Satan did not put Jesus on the cross nor did any man. Jesus laid down his own life. He lays down his life for his sheep, John tells us. No one takes it from him. He willingly lays it down and he does so in obedience to the Father. Why? Because godly obedience flows from love. 
God the Father loves his son. And that love compels the son to obey everything that the father says. His obedience isn't out of obligation, but out of an overflow of affection for the father and the father's affection for him. It's why Jesus could say at the end of John 14, toward toward the end of this passage in 31, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. Jesus's obedience is not for God's benefit. It's for ours. Jesus demonstrates to us that godly obedience flows from love. His life in place of ours. God, His grace and His mercy sends Jesus. And Jesus stands in a room with men who've spent their life believing He's the Messiah, but know that He's about to leave and they're overwhelmed with the thought that He won't be with them anymore. And they don't, they've been told that he's going to the cross. He's clearly communicated that to them. But it doesn't sound right, and surely this can't be God's plan. And in their anxiety and their trouble, Jesus speaks to them and he says, Believe, look up, look at me. Believe in me and believe in what I've told you to be true. None of this is catching me by surprise. This is what I came to do. And and, and I'm going to secure it with some promises that I'm making to you. I will be with you. And I'm going to secure my presence with you by sending the Holy Spirit. And you'll know that I'm with you because he'll dwell in your hearts. And I'm going to give you peace. And you don't fully comprehend it now, but that peace will be made complete in just a few hours. When I, when I climb up on the cross on your behalf so that the relationship that has been severed between you and my Father can be restored and you can share in the relationship that I have with God the Father. And don't worry, I know it looks bad, right? It looks bad. The God of this world, he's coming. And he brings with him destruction, but he has no power over me. And I know you're anxious and your hearts are torn in you, but hold on because I'm going to send the spirit and he's going to help you to remember even this day so that you might know that what I've said is true. You might be set free and you might live in light of that. What rich promises he makes to us and they're true. So as I close with a point of application, if you're in this room and you've never, you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I pray that as we walk through, God, through John that you've, you've seen Jesus on display and that what John wants for, to happen in your heart, the Spirit is stirring in you. And I'm asking you, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus and be saved. If you're in this room and you're part of our family and you know the love of God, then I would admonish us. Let's rest secure in Jesus's power over Satan and let's proclaim his salvation to a world that desperately needs it. God's love demonstrated to us through an unthinkable act of giving himself in our place to restore 
our relationship with him so that we might have a peace that the world cannot supply and so that we might in turn be ambassadors in the mission that God has called us to. He is good. May the truths of these promises calm our anxious hearts and confirm the Father's love for us. Let's pray. Father, would you, through the work of your Spirit, would you just let this stuff sink deep into us and let us rejoice at what you have done and let us look at you and look at Jesus and be amazed. God, you sent your Son for us when we did not deserve it. You demonstrated your love for us in the sending of your son so that we might experience your love and we might share in it. And so even today, God, may that bring us peace. With whatever we're facing in life, may we know that the worst thing that could be said by us, Jesus has stood up and said, I'll take your place. And no matter what we face, we can hold on to the promises that you've made, knowing that you are good on them. And what you promise is what we could never provide for ourselves. God, thank you for Jesus. And it is in his powerful name that we pray these things. Amen.